mi gente, welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. This season of Peruvians of USA is brought to you by Ana Isabel Photography. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture your piece of history? Look no further. Ana Isabel specializes in everything from weddings to family portraits, and she's here to help you show up as your best self in every shot. She knows that having your photo taken can be nerve-wracking, but she is committed to making the experience seamless and stress-free for you. Her goal is to capture your essence in every photo and make you feel comfortable throughout the day. With her expert eye and attention to detail, she will freeze time together with you, creating beautiful images that you can revisit whenever you want to spark a memory. Whether you're looking for stunning wedding photos or timeless family portraits, Anisabel has the skills and expertise to bring your vision to life. So why wait? Contact Anna at anisabelphotography.com today to book your session and start creating memories that will last a lifetime. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. Welcome, Viana Calderon Lopez to Peruvians of USA. Happy to have you here. I'm excited for our conversation. Uh, Viana, please uh, briefly introduce yourself to the audience. Yes, of course. Uh, my name is Viana Calderon. I'm also very glad to be part of this. Um, I hope everyone, you know, from this podcast either learned something or, you know, ever comes to us for guidance, any questions or concerns they have. But I am very excited to start this, especially season five. Great. Um, so, Vienna, why don't you tell us briefly, like, uh, what age did you come from Peru? What's your career now? And any exciting fun facts about you? <laughs> of course. So um, I came to the United States at the age of five. Um, I was I grew up in Peru and I was born in Chosica. Um, then I was raised in Santa Laulia um, and I went to actually a private Catholic nun school. That's what my parents used to tell me. Um, but uh, based on events that happened in Peru, uh, there was at that time the presidential Fujimori and my father lost his job. Um, he actually worked for Electro Lima. Um, and so he lost his job because of what was going on with the econom economical um, you know, system in Peru. And so a lot of Peruvians lost their jobs. And one of us, my father had to find a way to figure out what to do for his family. And so that's why we moved to the United States. Um, it was me, my, my sister, my mom and I, and my father. Um, and then we grew up in New York. Uh, we also had the difficultness of, you know, language barrier. Um, and I think we all can relate to that, especially anyone that's listening to this podcast. And so my father ended up finding jobs. You know, it wasn't obviously the top job in the world. It was minimum wage. Um, I remember him telling me that he would work at a deli at a dry cleaning service, you know, just helping around minimum wage and getting by um, as we were getting older. So that's a little bit of my Peruvian background. Um, I don't really have much of a memory of Peru because it's been such a while, um, <clears throat> but that's how we adjusted here um, in order to, you know, recover our family to recover from what was going on in Peru. So we had to come here for a better life. 
Yeah, and that's a very similar story to many of us, right? Like my dad also ended up losing his job in the 90s. I forget, to be honest, where he worked. I know he worked over like a night shift and the inflation that happened as well. And it's just like a parent trying to figure out how to best provide for their children. And mm -hmm. for many of us, for many of our parents, that meant just like looking for opportunities elsewhere, right? So yeah, similar story to to me as well. Like my parents decided to come and it was mm -hmm. my mom, my brother and I, so who who came. So tell us a little bit about your career right now. I think that that's something very interesting for the members of the audience to learn more about. Uh, what do you do? Why did you choose this career path? And then we can go from there. Yeah. So right now I'm a behavioral, um, a BCBA board certified behavioral analyst. So my main concentration is I focus on early childhood development for children who have um, any type of psychological diagnosis. And if we ever have, if anyone like teachers, um, pediatricians, or any providers that pr provide services to the child, whether it's speech, occupational therapy, have concerns regarding behavioral development, um, whether it's social skills, um, self-help, which is basically like, how do you adapt to new environment? How do you adapt to new kids around you playing time? Um, or even how do you clean up after yourself? Like, do you, how do you go to the bathroom? Things like that. So if there's any concerns regarding that development, that's where I come in. Um, so I don't have to focus on, like I focus on all ages. So I even can even focus on adults. So for children, it's a little bit, you know, we focus on early childhood development, what, how are they emerging to become independent. And then for adults, uh, we focus on certain uh, behaviors that can be concerning for socially, like if they're in a social environment. And so with what I do is I basically analyze that behavior that's either inappropriate and that's how we call it in some terms or, you know, um, out of context. And I analyze why the behavior is occurring. And basically, I find an intervention to reduce that inappropriate behavior and replace it with appropriate behavior. So let's just say um, we have a kid that, like I'll give you two examples. We have a kid that's, instead of when he's done playing, he throws his toys across the room. We teach him how to appropriate clean up or put it to the side if you're done playing with the toy. Um, instead of aiming it or throwing it across a room that might hurt someone. Um, then we also have for an adult, um, let's say, you know, while you're having a conversation with them, they tend to ask too many personal questions and, you know, questions that are not appropriate for a social setting. So then we teach them how to basically, in a way, ask a different question that's relating to what they want to ask. So I had a client, for example, that would ask like, oh, what's your husband's name? Where do you live? What's his number? What's his middle name? Um, and so obviously with these individuals, they don't know the barrier or the boundary that there is, especially because they have a diagnosis, a psychological diagnosis. So what I would teach in that scenario, and this is just an example of an intervention strategy is I would change the subject. I would, um, or sometimes I would be like, we can talk about that another day, or I can say, you know, you're not, we can't ask that. That's not appropriate. So depending on which intervention strategy and the person itself, you figure it out. And that's the whole point of our job. We want to make sure that however we're assessing and however we're trying to, in a way, fix the situation, um, not entirely fixed, but just, you know, make it appropriate. It's individualized to each person. 
So like not every adult will have the same intervention strategy. They're all very different and they're all very personalized to the person itself, their own behaviors. And that's the beauty of um, my job. So what type of therapy do I use for the intervention strategies? It's called ABA, um, which is actually known for to be used for children with autism or anyone with autism. Um, but ABA has been proven that it can help anyone, you know, kids with Down syndrome, or any psychological disorders such as ADD, ADHD. Um, so that's where the type of therapy that I use, it's called applied behavioral analysis, which is ABA. I analyze, I apply the, I analyze, figure out the function of the behavior. And then from there, I develop intervention strategies, test out those strategies, see if it reduced. And then if it did, we keep them. And if they didn't, you have to reanalyze again to figure out what's going on. So it's a lot to take in, but um, it's really fun. I chose this career path because I actually wanted to be a, a doctor. Didn't know what type of doctor. Um, I was going to then, so I actually graduated from Hunter College with my bachelor's of behavioral, uh, not behavioral, it's like neurobehavioral. So I love neuroscience that... Um, I wanted to still pursue the medical degree. And so once I finished my bachelor's, I decided to take a gap year um, or I had two options, either take the gap year or go to Stony Brook to obtain a master's degree in neuroscience. And so the gap year would have been focusing on studying for my MCAT and then, you know, applying to medical school. But unfortunately, with the immigration status that I had, it was very difficult for me to, in a way, find a solution to pay for medical school um, because um, I was still trying to figure out, you know, whether it comes to loans. Um, a lot of kids that go to medical school, like will either apply for financial aid or TAP um, or take out a loan from, you know, their parents will help them take out a loan to cover the medical school fees. I didn't have any of those. It had to be either like a high rate loan um, or basically pay it off so it was very difficult for me to kind of let that go because I really did want it to be a neuroscientist um, so then I decided just to get my master's in neuroscience um, in Stony Brook so I actually got a master's there and then as I had to find a job with my bachelor's degree um, I could have worked with in laboratory work um, especially for any neurodevelopment programs but then I was basically, I reached out. Um, I just applied to a bunch of jobs, like, you know, young graduate applying to a bunch of jobs in Indeed. And an agency found me from Early Intervention, a state-funded program. And they were they told me, would you like to be a behavioral therapist? Because with your credentials and your degree, you can do it. And I said, sure, why not? Because I just needed a job, um, especially when you're graduating, you know, a real adult job. And I ended up liking it. And that's why... While I was working with early childhood development, uh, I was obtaining my neuroscience degree, but then I started liking a lot the aspect of maybe can I apply neuroscience in early childhood development? And that's why I found the behavioral analyst master's program through Hunter College. Um, and so my goal is to not be more of a psychological behavioral analyst, but a neurological like basically like psych neuro, um, a combination and not a lot of people do that. Um, so that's one of the things that I decided to kind of find on my own. And because of life, 
you know, things happening in life. I find it very funny that, you know, I work in early childhood development where I never thought in a million years I would do that. Um, but it's fun. I enjoy it. So that's how I got to where I am right now. Yeah, there's definitely a lot there to unpack. And thank you for going through that. Um, I, you mentioned, um, you know, that there are the um, behavioral anal analysts, correct? Um, there are some resources that parents can have access to for their children. And then there's some uh, interventions or that can support children with autism, ADHD, Down syndrome. And um, I don't think a lot of parents, especially in our community, know um, how these resources are available to them, whether it's through the schools or through their local governments, like their counties or their cities. Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse to like um, how parents can tap into these resources if they have children who need support? And, and also as a parent, um, how would you even, uh, how do you even start to realize that your child may have uh, may need may need those resources, right? Or um, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I don't know if you can sort of guide us through through that process of a parent and and then where they can look for the resources to help them support them. Right, of course. Um, so usually we get mainly our referrals from pediatricians. Um, usually your pediatrician will ask you a bunch of questions, especially when you have your like monthly exams. Um, so they would ask you like, how is he doing at home? Is he starting to talk? Is he saying words? So like, let's say I have a two-year-old that's, you know, being seen by a pediatrician for uh, the 24-month uh, exam. And one of the main questions that they ask you is, is he talking? Is he saying 50 words at least? Um, how is he doing with the new kids around him? Like, how does he, does he play with them? Does he like to play by himself? Um, so you kind of get a social history questionnaire done by your pediatrician. And based that they will let you know um, you know if everything's okay or if you need to go seek services um, so usually the way that it ends up being is that there are some behavioral concerns especially with socialization at such a young age that's where most of our early childhood clients come in um, and they send it to so the pediatrician always has to send a referral to it's called early intervention and all states have it um, it's based on every county. So like, for example, I'm in New York. So New York has, you know, not only upstate New York, but you also have Manhattan, the five boroughs, like the five boroughs, and then Long Island. So each early, each county has their early intervention um, program that is state funded. So unfortunately, it's sad to say this, but if you live in like a high rural city, like, for example, in Manhattan or the five boroughs in New York, a lot of funding there. Um, and so I've had a lot of parents go from Long Island to the five boroughs to get more services. Um, but regardless, you get some form of start with early intervention. Um, so early intervention will take that referral. They will reach out to you as well, like the parent. And then they go through a process of evaluations. They evaluate the child based on the pediatrician's concerns. And then from there, we basically uh, let you know if the child is eligible for services. So we have like a scale of based on each uh, age, what are they expected to be doing by now? So we do a testing depending on service. So for example, for speech, they do a speech evaluation and um, they do their own specific testing based on, based on the age. And then from there, um, they also make the recommendation of how many times a week you get speech services if you're eligible. 
So in my scenario, we do, there's various that we actually do. We have a lot of testing of behavior analysts, um, but we don't go in right away unless there's a concern of autism um, at an early childhood. So if there's a concern of autism, we have a, psycholo a, psych a psychologist come in for an evaluation and they do two types of autism exams. And then that's when we come in as a behavioral analyst after, because based on the evaluation itself, if there was a behavioral concern, I assess it after. Um, so that's for little ones. For children three and up, school school districts until they're 18. Um, if there's any concerns from the social worker at school, a teacher expresses a concern about the child, you know, gets to, uh, and then the parent is notified, then the whole there's a special education department for each school district. They do an evaluation process as well. And then um, then they reach out to us if the child does have some form of diagnosis or in need of service. So in our case, the ABA therapy. Um, and then as you get older, if you're you know not in a school district, that is actually kind of on your own, unfortunately. You know, if you notice that something's not right personally, um, or if something triggers you, you know, just like if you were to seek for a psychologist for your own mental health, that's where we come in as well. But that's on your own time and on your own terms, because at that point, you're already, you know, an adult. Um, so that are, those are different ways to obtain them based on each age category. Our ABA services, um, you mentioned they're usually state funded. Does that mean that parents won't incur cost or there could be a cost depending on the state, the city, the county? So early intervention is the state funded program. So we ask you for your insurance and then whatever your insurance does not cover, um, then early intervention will take care of the rest, the program. So that's how it's at no cost for the family from zero to three. From three to 18, same thing. They'll ask you if you have Medicaid, mm -hmm. um, only Medicaid though. The school district will process the, uh, you know, the insurance and then the rest of the school district will cover it. And then after that, um, it, once you're 18, that's on your own. You'll financially pay that on your own. Now, ABA services are in high demand, not enough providers. So unfortunately, not a lot of Medicaid insurance providers want to pay agencies enough. So, for example, a lot of, a lot of agencies want to work with Medicaid. So for three to 18, the only way for you to get ABA is through the school district. And if you don't become eligible, you have to um, seek it privately. And that's what a lot of parents have been doing, um, which is kind of sad, um, especially with, you know, we, any healthcare provider can, I guess, can express their own frustration when it comes to, you know, medical insurance and things like that. Um, but we all try to find our way to, try to help in some way. Um, like for example, I work with Medicaid and at the same time I work privately as well. Um, and anyone that ever needs assistance or some form of help, I always make sure that I answer their questions, not right away. Like if someone tells me like, hey, can you tell me what's wrong? <laughs> but more like I can guide you to seek what you can get um, as much as needed for the person that we were asking for. If parents would like to research more about this, is there any place that you recommend that you get started it, or is it really just making sure they're talking to the pediatrician or to the schools like if there's anybody out there who just wants to learn more about the services available to them yeah so through your pediatrician you would always get this um the information right away especially when there's a concern like that right away they give you everything 
Um, and then when they, you guys come to us, we make sure that we guide you a lot. So usually the, it also depends on eligibility, um, where in the aspect, I mean, if, for example, autism, there's like a spectrum. So if there's a low spectrum, you know, we give you the right information based on your child. But if there's a high spectrum, the information that you need is very different from the child that has low spectrum. So in reality, it's not like it's right there that you could find it in Google or anything like that. Um, it's based on what the child needs. And that's what I mean by um, my job being so individualized. We make a plan individualized to you. Um, so I would say the best place to get information is your pediatrician. And if not, it would be early intervention. Okay, great. Uh, thank you for that information. I think that's going to be very useful to the parents out there uh, or to themselves, right? Like, because it's not just for kids, like it could be for, for you and, and see if there's anything that you would want some support with. Yes. Um, let's pivot a little bit to your DACA experience or your experience as a DACA student. Yes. Um, you mentioned that, you know, it was, you decided to um, kind of pivot your own education because of DACA status, but you also were pretty good about seeking scholarships. And so I guess I just wanted to, I just want you to share a little bit of your DACA experience um, and basically why did you choose to um, continue your education without the security that there's going to be some sort of way to um, legalize, I guess I'm just gonna say, you know, status here. And the reason I ask that question is because I know some members of our community who are undocumented or don't have DACA or even do have DACA, um, they question whether they should continue their education, right? Because there's no guarantee. And so I just want to hear your thoughts around that. And then just, um, I guess, share with us your DACA experience. Um, so yes, I will always encourage everyone to continue with education regardless of your immigration status. Um, actually, when I was a senior in high school, there was no DACA. I was I was literally illegal. Um, I didn't know what to do. And for example, I found that I was illegal when I was 15, 16, when, because um, my parents pushed me a lot when it came to school, um, you know, made sure I had high honor society, had to have a GPA always over 95, you know, at first I was like, oh, my parents, you know, they just want me to be the best version of myself. Um, but then as I got older, they pressured it more. And then it came to the point where, for example, um, I became well-rounded, such as the aspect of I played an instrument. Um, I was in like, what we call it like honors band. Um, I played soccer um, in school and I also was playing in the travel league team. So as you can see, I was doing a lot of things. And and then it was when we started talking about college. As I started talking about college at such a young age because I was so studious. And that's when I found out about my immigration status. And it was kind of like upsetting at first because I felt like all the work that I was doing wasn't going to get paid off. And so... In that same, in my high school, there was another girl that was in the same process as me, um, like in the same situation as I was, and she actually gave me hope because she was a year older than me and she was going through the college process and she got into Harvard uh, for free, like full ride, um, full scholarship and everything. 
And that's why our guidance counselors, well, we have the same guidance counselors. They decided for us to meet and that's where I got my guidance from. She told me, you know, you have to get everything academically scholarships. Um, so, you know, she didn't know me. So she's like, where are you with that? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm in high honor society. I take AP classes. She's like, perfect. You're a great candidate. You also have to do a lot of things. And so I was like, okay. So I was, you know, playing the instrument, doing the sports, doing it all. I even taught religion at a, a Catholic school, which I'm going like, to say why I'm bringing this up because it's actually a funny story, but I taught religion for children from uh, third grade and up to eighth grade. And so she was the one that told me, apply to all the schools that you want. Now, obviously, it's going to cost you because, um, you know, we don't have any type of aid to, you know, cover scholars, uh, college applications, I'm sorry. And then you have to apply to not only a lot of honors programs um, in the schools to get an academic scholarship, but also third party scholarships. Um, you know, the ones that certain companies give out that vary from like a grand to 10 grand, or sometimes I've heard they even reach up to 25 grand now currently. So I did, that's what I did. Um, and then when, when I wrote my essay for college, I had to get it reviewed by my teacher. And that's how my teacher found out that I was legal. And that's where she also kind of came in and introduced me to some people that I should have met. Um, in order to obtain possibly, you know, like a couple scholarships here and there. So that helped a lot. That's actually where I got most of my third party scholarships through that teacher because the teacher introduced me to someone who eventually had a lot of influence in my town. So I was able to get like about 20,000 grand, like $20,000 of third party scholarships. And then, then I had to focus on, you know, how to, now the schools, what school do I go to? And the same, you know, the other student that got into Harvard, she was like, reach for the stars. Don't ever let anyone say you can't. So I actually applied to Harvard and Princeton as well. Um, and then I only applied to um, one safe school, which was the CUNY schools in New York. Do I regret not applying to so many? Yes. And that's one tip I would give everyone right now. If you can apply to as many as you can, if you're really, you know, at a good academic stance, don't ever think that you can't get in. And so you limit yourself to a couple of applications. No, apply to many. Um, and so I got into the CUNY schools. I got into the Macaulay Honors Program. So they were giving me a full ride to Queens College. Um, but I wanted to go to the Ivy Leagues, especially when you've worked so hard and, you know, you've done so many. And so I remember someone once told me, you know, you're smart. You don't always just want to be smart. So that's another tip I would give for all my DACA um, audience you want to be very well-rounded because I, you know, there could be a girl just like me with that 97 average or, you know, but what makes me different than her? And in my case, I played travel soccer, played high school soccer, taught religion, you know, did a lot of volunteer work um, in a Hispanic brotherhood. So I was like doing a lot. So that's how I made myself stand out. And when I applied, um, I got interviewed by both Harvard and Princeton during their, um, during, which was kind of interesting because I've heard sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it doesn't mean anything, um, where you, you apply to school and then all of a sudden they want to speak to you and get to know you even more. Um, sometimes, you know, I've heard a lot of like mixed feelings about that. Like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I got interviewed by both Harvard and Princeton. And ironically, my Harvard... Um, 
my Harvard interviewer was uh who was interviewing me was someone from the religion school. And so that's why I always say sometimes the world is so small. So she knew me. She didn't know about my story. And so that interview process was just really like very fun. And she knew what I wanted and what were my dreams and hopes already. Um, see, uh, Princeton, I did not know, um, but it was very inspiring because um, it was at one of the headquarters. So if I'm not mistaken, so one of the, the way that the university gets their, you know, people to get interviewed by, um, usually are people from that used to have went to Princeton, it's like alumni. So she was actually a broker in Wall Street. So I had to go to her headquarters in Wall Street. Um, and, you know, she was a very powerful woman and she was like, she was interviewing me. She was like, well, you know, why do you want to go to Princeton? And I was amazed by that because that inspired me. Um, I didn't, you know, grew up in riches. Um, that was another thing, you know, we were low income. So having a little bit of aspect of that form of life inspired me a lot. And so that's how my process with Princeton was. And I got into CUNY, like I mentioned, I got rejected by Harvard and then I got waitlisted um, by Princeton first. And so I was, I felt very defeated. I was very upset, I remember. Um, and it wasn't until after we had to confirm where we were going, like decision day, um, because, you know, Princeton never reached out. I just decided to go to Queens. And then like about two weeks after, I remember Princeton reached out saying that they were willing enough to give me a spot because someone, you know, just like the about the process goes, someone dropped out and there was a seat open and that they were willing enough to give me um, half of a scholarship and basically to cover half of basically the full four years. And so I, I'm pretty sure as that, as everyone knows, Ivy League schools are not cheap. And so my family and I, we were kind of stuck. Um, like my parents knew I was, my parents knew I was applying to school like this. And we knew it was very hard because even as a, a citizen, it's very hard to get in. It's not even about being, you know, immigrant or not. It's just, it's, it's a really, it's an Ivy League school. And we were shocked in a way where we were like, wow, I got in, but wow, I got in. So now what do we do? Um, and unfortunately I did not go. I did not go because there just wasn't, I couldn't put my family through that. And I think consciously as an 18 year old girl, I took that upon myself. I couldn't put my family to go to get through alone and, you know, kind of like work day and night, even though they're already working day and night. Um, and I took it upon myself to take that financial responsibility. So I kind of said, don't worry, let me figure it out first. Um, and I took it to, and I decided not to go, which was kind of sad. And I wish I did, because I think the opportunities would have been amazing, especially for my career. But um, I, that's why I ended up in Queens College and I had a great experience in Queens College. Um, but then I eventually transferred to Hunter, which I was able to keep my scholarship. And I finished uh, with my bachelor's with no debt. Um, I never took out any money, everything was saved. And then the extra money that I made from third-party scholarships, I had it covered through Stony Brook. Um, so even with Stony Brook for my neuroscience degree, I was also covered. So there's always a will and there's always uh, there's a quote right um there's always a will there's always a way and even though I didn't go to that Ivy League school I will one day and if right now it's possibly going to be for my PhD um 
I am going to apply to Columbia University. So the Ivy League dream is still there. Haven't let it go to this day. Um, but it was definitely, it definitely made me grow up. And I always tell everyone, because everyone asks me like, wow, you must have been really sad. And, you know, you missed a lot of opportunities. And I told them, no, I'm actually not. I don't regret any of the decisions I've made or how I grew up. If anything, it made me very independent. Um, you know, I took it upon myself as an 18-year-old girl to do everything on my own. Never asked my parents for any money, not even for books, nothing. Because, you know, as a, as a child, I think I grew up fast because of that. And I, I just felt bad that they had to also now, we, I had another sister that was going off to college in three years. And I just didn't want to apply that pressure. Um, and I think that, I don't know if a lot of immigrant children can relate to that, but we see our parents go through such a hassle, you know, working day and night. Um, and once we get older, we start to realize how difficult it is actually to live a life like that. Um, and I admire them for doing as much as they could. Um, so I didn't, if anything, I know parents said, don't, don't do it for me, do it for yourself. But in reality, I did it for them because I've always told myself, I want to take care of them one day and, um, they deserve that at least. Yeah. I want to just applaud how, um, mature for your age you were. And I can definitely relate to your story about, um, not wanting to impose a financial burden let's just call it that on our parents um despite working your ass off to you know get accepted in somewhere like Princeton um that's something that a lot of kids here in the U.S. don't have right they almost see it as like but of course my family is going to take care of this and so I think immigrant kids just have this awareness of how hard our parents work what the financial situation of the family is um and yeah, I'm just impressed and I can definitely relate. I made some decisions about my education path too as well, uh, you know, where I took the route where I would be uh, covered by scholarships. Um, mm -hmm. And in retrospect, looking now with the whole like lo student loan crisis that's happening in this country, it's, it's like, well, I guess I made the right decision. I guess you made the right decision because there's so many people or age now stuck with those loans, right? And so... Um, yeah, I, I think you just there's certain things that you don't know at that age and you just make the best decision you can with the knowledge that you have at that moment. I guess my question now is, I know you said you don't regret it, but would you do anything different like uh, in that process? Would you, would, if you were back in that position or if somebody, a member of our audience has a kid or they're listening and they're in that position right now, what would your advice be? Uh, just like I mentioned before, definitely apply to a lot of more schools. I wish I would apply to or I would have been well informed on my, you know, immigration status to be, to know that regardless of it, I should still apply, you know. Um, one thing I've learned about universities is they want diversity. Diversity is, is something that they need. Um, and so, you know, when you have an immigrant um, student who is trying, is willing enough to work hard, they're not, they're very, like the school will be willingly enough to give you what you need especially to continue your academic course um because like for example when I went to Stony Brook and I told them my story um they see how much of a hard worker you are based on the circumstances and so why not give that child a scholarship why not give that student a scholarship I mean um so you kind of have to prove yourself to them um 
So if anything, I regret not showing myself enough to other people that I can do that. I think my audience was very limited. Um, I think I thought that I, I had a limited audience, but in reality, my audience was actually way bigger um, and it could have been inspiring to many people. Yeah. And I guess as you're sharing your story to the theme of owning your story and finding power within your story, I think it's a uh it's 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 a theme there right like uh and i think sometimes we shy away from sharing our immigrant stories sharing the struggles that we went through and, mm-hmm. and not knowing that these schools actually value that and actually see that um this is what makes you special makes you different from the rest of like the students applying there right it makes you a more interested person um all right so as we wrap up um i wanted to see what what's the one message you want the audience to take away from our conversation um definitely always don't ever give up be ambitious uh definitely motivate yourself and if you don't have that motivation seek for it i feel like we all have that and so I encourage everyone to never stop themselves. Like, for example, I didn't get the Ivy League school right away. A lot of people say maybe Stony Brook might be Ivy League, but I don't think so. But I'm still searching for that Ivy League. It's not It's not that I want the status or the prestige status of it, but I've always told myself I'm going to get a doctorate degree somehow in an Ivy League. So don't give up. Keep going. Um, you'll be surprised how far you get um, on your own, especially when you have such motivation like that. So that would be one message to wrap everything up. Great. Thank you so much, Vienna, for your time. I really appreciate it. And I wish you the best in your path to getting that PhD in an Ivy League school. Please keep in touch. I definitely want to congratulate you when that happens. Um, And if members of our audience wants to reach out to you, whether to ask you questions about I don't know, like the uh, Harvard Princeton application or applied behavior, uh, you know, role analyst that you have, um, how can they reach you? Yes, of course. Um, so you could definitely reach me at my working agency that I have because I am part of, I work for an agency. So definitely for the applied behavioral analyst, if you know, if you need a referral, if you um, need to seek for services. Um, and then, so do I just give out my email? Okay. Oh, or I can put it in the episode notes. So you can share it with me and I'll put it in the episode notes and anybody can read that there and then reach out. Yeah. And then, you know, we'll see. And if anything ever comes to be, then I would, we will go to the further step of however we can help anyone. But yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Vienna. I appreciate your time. Yes, of course. Thank you. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.